Hurry in during Ram Truck Month and discover what it truly means to drive a truck that's built to serve. Ram 3500 with an available legendary Cummins engine. Ram TRX, the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. And Ram 1500, ranked number one in driver appeal among large light-duty pickups in 2022. That's three years in a row by J.D. Power. Hurry in during Ram Truck Month. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Here we go. This is a case that a lot of people have been waiting for and the case that I've been working on longer than any other case that I've ever researched, except um, obviously the cases for my books, but I'm talking about any other case I've ever researched for the podcast. Today we are starting on the Alyssa Turney case and we will definitely not be finishing it today. There is so much in this case to go over. And I kind of want to cover as much as possible without, like, just going on and on about every detail. So, it's it's going to be a few episodes. It's going to be a few parts. Pretty much all of this research was done through reading articles, interviews, watching YouTube videos on the case, and listening to Sarah Turney's Voices for Justice podcast. Um, it is Thursday right now, and I started the Voices for Justice podcast on Saturday, but as of today, I have finished it. If you don't know what Voices for Justice is, it's Sarah Turney's, which is Alyssa Turney's sister. It's her podcast that goes over every aspect of her sister's case. It's a really chilling podcast, um, because there's interviews with so many people, and the details are just terrifying to me as they should be to anyone in their right mind. But it really, she really dives into everything and she goes over transcripts and interviews a lot of people who were around when Alyssa went missing and it's a very good podcast. Um, I really suggest you go listen to it and be sure to post on Twitter with the Justice for Alyssa hashtag because that is something that is gaining a lot of momentum, and we want to keep that going. So in the first episode of the VFJ podcast, Sarah shares a phone call with her father, who is the perceived suspect who totally did it, but we'll get into that later. Sarah starts off with stating she knows she is being manipulative to her father, but honestly, I don't think she is. She's a strong woman with a good mission, and she's just doing everything she can to find justice and get her father to confess. I think if any of us were in that position, we would say the exact same things. I don't think she's being harsh in that phone call. Throughout the call, Sarah presents the facts to her father about his lying and what he has said about Alyssa since she has gone missing. And he continues to just deny everything he has been recorded saying and maintains that he is innocent despite sounding quite condescending. If you haven't listened to this podcast, once again, please go do so because it is extremely in-depth and she has a lot of information that is not discussed really anywhere else and not discussed as openly as some other aspects of the case. Share the VFJ podcast, the episode well, this episode of this podcast and any other podcast or video 
that has gone over the Alyssa Turney case. Share as many articles about it as possible and as many posts about the case as possible because media exposure is what this case needs right now. Media exposure and public knowledge are what help get cases solved at this day and age, and we need to be using that to our advantage. Um, that's kind of how this whole podcast started. Um, like our first like mission statement, I guess you could say, is was talking about providing media coverage for these unsolved cases because that is how they get solved. So let's start off into the Alyssa Turney case and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved and of course Sarah Turney on Twitter and the VFJ podcast for updates on this case. So I want to start off with reading a post that Sarah Turney wrote on justiceforalyssa.com. This is another place you can go to look at, like, just everything about the case and where it has been featured and just everything, okay? <laughs> I don't really know how to explain it all, but just please go look at justiceforalyssa.com. So here is what she posted. I often get asked why I think my father killed Alyssa, and it's a fair question. But when I'm asked, my mind explodes into a thousand different thoughts and memories that piece together my strong conviction. When researching my father's life, you could easily find yourself going back decades before Alyssa was born. And it's important to understand all of the insane circumstances that led up to the point in which Michael Turney killed Alyssa. But it can be daunting. In an attempt to educate as many people as possible about this case, I realized I need to simplify it. So although there are so many more, here are my top five pieces of evidence against my father for the murder of my sister, Alyssa Turney. Number one, abuse. The evidence that Alyssa was most likely being abused for the majority of her life is overwhelming and heartbreaking. There were over 20 statements given to the police stating that Alyssa was being physically and sexually abused by our father. These statements were provided by friends, family, and a teacher of Alyssa's that our father was dating. There are also letters written by Alyssa describing the abuse. The relationship our father had with Alyssa is commonly described by those who knew her as one closer to an abusive boyfriend rather than a fatherly figure. He was extremely possessive, often sitting in the parking lot of Alyssa's part-time job to ensure she was where she was supposed to be. He constantly warned her friends and their parents of how she was gullible and unable to take care of herself. He also required Alyssa to sign behavioral contracts that included a clause stating that he never sexually or physically abused her. Approximately one year before Alyssa disappeared, CPS received a call from our father stating that his stepdaughter, Alyssa, was going to call them and falsely accuse him of sexually abusing her so that he would buy her a car. He acknowledges this, but states that he only called to ask what he could do when a parent is being falsely accused of abuse. It should be noted that Alyssa, in fact, had a car previously that was sold because she was afraid to drive and that our father constantly offered to buy her another 
so she could help drive me to school and run errands. My father did not display this behavior with any of his other five children. This abuse, the fear, and the fear of it becoming public knowledge is what I believe to be his strongest motive to murder Alyssa. Number two is means and opportunity. Not only did our father have the motive, he also had the means and opportunity. Our father took Alyssa out of school early that day and told no one. He did it on a very strategic day, the last day of school. This would ensure her being missing would stay quiet. No panic at the school, no vigils, no students needing to go to the counselor to talk, nothing. I was on a field trip at a water park that day, so he knew I wouldn't ask him to pick me up early from school, which happened often. He had a large time span to murder and dispose of Alyssa's body from approximately 11 a.m. to as late as 7 p.m. One witness reports our father purchasing a large amount of lye around the time of Alyssa's disappearance. He has acknowledged this purchase. He had a vast knowledge of the desert and is familiar with countless desert areas. Despite his claims of being ill, my father has always been physically strong and was recently evaluated as having the body of a 45-year-old at the age of 70, so the act of murder and disposing of a body would not have been difficult for him at the age of 53. At the time Alyssa went missing, our father owned two identical trucks, one he hid from his six children. These trucks were both sold soon after Alyssa's disappearance. Number three, surveillance failure. The amount of surveillance equipment that seemingly failed on Alyssa's last day in the home is too many to reasonably called a coincidence. Our home had multiple surveillance devices, including a passive recording system on the home phone that recorded all phone calls coming in and going out. This was a system that my father had maintained since before I was born. The other devices were cameras that recorded into a VHS tape automatically. One camera was hidden in the living room vent facing our couch, the other in our driveway capturing the main door used for the home. We have no video from Alyssa's last day, and we have no audio from the phone call that my father alleges Alyssa made a week later from California. My father has stated that all of these devices failed. He's also stated that he didn't, in fact, have the video surveillance from Alyssa's last day but refused to give it to the police, stating there was nothing of interest on the tape. Number four, lies and deceit. The amount of lies my father has told about Alyssa's disappearance are seemingly endless, and the evidence of him acting with deceit is strong. Alyssa was reported missing around 11 p.m. on the day she went missing. My father casually called the police, stating that Alyssa was gone, but she had left a runaway note and he believed she ran away to her aunt's house in California. Contrarily, he instantly caused a panic within the family and among her friends with a sense of urgency for her safety. As a former member of law enforcement, it's reasonable to believe he would know how to report a missing person in such a way that it would spark interest from the police and also how to report in person missing in such a way that would cause no concern at all. This act, the fact that a police officer never came to our home that day to see the cameras, to ask about the footage, to see the painfully obvious red flags, is what caused us 
to lose all physical evidence in this case. The traffic cameras, phone records, school records, all gone due to the seven-year delay in investigating this case. My father knew exactly what he was doing. He never told the family that he took Alyssa out of school early that day. In fact, he has told conflicting stories about Alyssa's last day. One that she ran away with a biker, one that she never went to school that day at all. He even told a neighbor that Alyssa went to live with relatives in California for the summer. Soon after Alyssa was gone, my father told one of my brothers that two assassins from the electrical union killed Alyssa and buried her in Desert Center, California. He also stated that because of this, he was forced to kill the two men. However, he continued to tell the rest of the family she was still missing. Lowe's knows how to get your lawn ready for spring. And right now, you can take up to $10 off select Scott's fertilizers. Plus, you can save $50 on a Craftsman 20-volt 13-inch string trimmer and leaf blower combo kit. Now just $99. Get set for spring. Visit us in-store or online today. Because Lowe's knows home improvement. Valid 323 through 45. Selection varies by location. While supplies last, excludes Alaska and Hawaii. And appeared to be looking for her. He refused to give his DNA to the police. He has always and continues to refuse a formal interview with the police. However, he states that he will meet with them under a slew of conditions, including the meeting would be conducted on live television. He would have the capability to interrogate his, his entire family, the judge in his bomb case, John Walsh, and the two detectives from the Phoenix Police Department. Three, that the aforementioned people would be given polygraphs administered by Canadian operators. Number five, taunting confessions. I met with my father in October of 2017, a few months after his release from prison. It was the first time we had spoken to each other without the prison recording our conversation in 10 years. After realizing that I wasn't there to reconnect, he became angry. In addition to a slew of shocking and disgusting statements about Alyssa, he also taunted me with the closest thing to a confession we will probably ever have. Quote, be at the deathbed, Sarah, and I will give you all the honest answers you want to hear. End quote. He then agreed to tell me everything if the state agreed to give him lethal injection within 10 days of his confession. So when people ask me why I think my father killed Alyssa, that's a large piece of it, because I sat across from him and he laughed at me, tried to intimidate me, and taunted me. He knows he did it, and he knows he's getting away with it. I've lost more friends and family members than I can count because of my conviction over this case. But tell me, if the police told you for years that your loved one's pedophile murderer was finally going to be convicted of his heinous crimes, and then he wasn't, what would you do? What I'm going to do is scream to the whole world until Alyssa has justice. I'm going to abandon all fear of police retaliation, all fear of this destroying my career, and all fear of this consuming and destroying my life. I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do and Alyssa would have done it for me. Alright, so I have literally no idea where to start in this case. I have over 20 pages of notes, it's over like 10,000 words, and... I've watched so many videos on this case and listened to so many podcasts. 
And I'm not complaining about that at all. Let me get that straight. I am so happy so many people are covering her case. I'm so happy I was able to dive into this case so much. I'm just saying I had nowhere to, like, no idea where to start. Um, so basically, I thought I should just start off with giving the basic, like, stats of Alyssa. Because as of today, she is still categorized as missing, not murdered. So Alyssa was born on April 3rd, 1984. She went missing on May 17th, 2001, at the age of 17 from Phoenix, Arizona. As of today, she would be 35 years old, if my math is correct. When she went missing, she was 5 foot 4, 145 pounds, with blonde hair that also had highlights and hazel eyes. The one like distinguishing feature she had was a scar on her chin. And any information should be forwarded to the Child Protection Education of America at 866-USA-CHILD or the Phoenix Police Department at findalissa at gmail.com or 1-800-843-5678. So when Alyssa was three years old, her mother married Michael Turney. Mike had three sons. And Alyssa's mother had her and a boy. Together, Mike and Barbara had Sarah. Mike is also reported to have a daughter from a brief marriage, but has never taken responsibility for being the father. Sarah Turney has stated that tests have not been done, but based on appearances, they look like they're related. Mike used to say in the home, that step or second child were not allowed because they were supposed to view each other as just family. They weren't stepbrothers, stepsisters, stepsons, stepdaughters. It was just a family of children and parents. And when I read that, I was honestly very happy with that. So, like, I think that's how it should always be, honestly. Of course, in you got to take into account what the children want to be related with and all that. But I think that is a really great view, and it kind of made it seem for a second like Michael Turney might not be that bad of a person. Don't worry, I only thought that for like the split second, and that's the only reason I thought it, because everything else about, about him is pretty shitty. So <laughs> we'll get into it. But I do like the idea of not using the word step in, like, blended families. So in the 90s, Barbara got cancer, and a year later, she passed away. Mike only had Alyssa and Sarah left at home, so he became their father and their family overall. Mike says Alyssa focused more on her friends and boyfriend at the time because she was a typical teen, and she was always fun and funny. Her friends say she was never boring. It was the last day of her junior year, and Alyssa's stepfather, Michael Turney, came to pick her up for lunch. Mike states that during lunch, they simply talked about what they were going to do that summer, but then an argument happened. So here I want to say that there was no reported reason for her to be picked up early, so after it came out that she was picked up early, a lot of people found it odd. I mean, it was the last day of school. Why not just let her stay? She was going to get out early anyway. There was no reason to pick her up 
earlier than school let out. And later in the case, we find out that Mike didn't even tell the rest of the family members that he had picked her up early. Like, after she went missing and everything, they were given, like, what happened that day. But Mike didn't reveal that he had picked her up early, which is a vital piece of the case, honestly. So, apparently, Alyssa wanted to be able to stay out later and not have to check in. But her father, stepfather, I'm going to use the word stepfather because that's how we're going to distinguish it here, said no. Quote, as long as you're under my roof, you're going to have to check in with daddy because daddy's a nervous wreck if you don't. End quote. Um, can I just say, that just, that sounds like a very creepy message. Um, not judging really, but... It sounds creepy. So this is apparently what upset Alyssa a lot. She went straight to her room when they got home, and Mike ended up going to pick up her younger sister, Sarah, from school and run some errands. Now, when I was that age, of course, I wanted to stay out as late as possible and not check in. And my dad was pretty, like, chill with it. He... Didn't, I didn't have a curfew. I could stay out like as late as I want as long as I let him know where I was and kept checking in so he knew I was safe and alive. And I, every parent is different. My boyfriend, when we were in high school, on school nights, he had to be back at 9 p.m. On weekends, he had to be back at midnight. And of course, he had to check in with his parents. So it just depends on the family life. And neither of us feel like we had a bad childhood because of these things like they never really affected us but I mean at the time you get mad about things like that Mike did not pick up Sarah from school that day though he was not there at the time when school got out Sarah didn't really care she just went to her friend's house and she stated that Mike picked her up just before dark which leaves him kind of unaccounted for for quite a while if he got Alyssa out of school at around 11 a.m and they went to lunch for maybe an hour they got home probably at like 12 30 or 1 at the very latest and he didn't go pick up Sarah till around 7 ish so what was he doing for six hours when he did pick up Sarah. He told her that Alyssa was not answering her phone and asked if Sarah could try to contact her. Sarah Turney said that moments before her father picked her up, she was smoking cigarettes with her friend and smoking cigarettes was a big no in their house because their mother had died of lung cancer from smoking. Sarah knows that she smelled like cigarettes because she was 12 and she didn't know how to cover up smells yet. So she found it really odd that her father said nothing. When they got home, Alyssa was not there. Her phone was there along with a note. The note read, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you really wanted me gone. Now you have it. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took 300 from you. Other than this, Alyssa's backpack was dumped out in the middle of her room, which Sarah now reflects on as very odd 
because Alyssa normally kept her room very neat. Okay, so I laid out the basics of what happened the day she went missing, and now I want to look deeper into that entire report of what happened and where Alyssa went, because it raises a lot of questions. Number one, if Alyssa was discussing future plans for that summer, then it wouldn't really make sense for her to run away. Generally, when looking at missing persons cases or perceived suicide cases, we look to see if these people had future plans. That's like a telltale sign that they were planning on being around. Alyssa was making and discussing those plans, so it isn't completely logical to think she was planning to run away. She could have been covering and trying to seem like she wasn't going to run away, but then why waste a full lunch talking about plans you will never be a part of? Also, if she was trying to bargain with her stepfather about staying out late, then I really don't think she was planning on running away, at least at that time. Because why would you get in a big argument with someone over something that's not going to matter in a few hours? Also, it is reported by friends that she had plans that night to go to a party. So why not run away like the next day after saying goodbye to all of her friends? Number two, if she wasn't thinking about running away at that time, then that brings the note into question. Why would she falsely state she decided earlier that morning if she really hadn't until after that conversation with her father? She... A good time starts with a great wardrobe. Next stop, JCPenney. Family get-togethers to fancy occasions, wedding season too. We do it all in style. Dresses, suiting, and plenty of color to play with. Get fixed up with brands like Liz Claiborne, Worthington, Stafford, and Jay Farrar. Oh, and thereabouts for kids. Super cute and extra affordable. Check out the latest in-store, and we're never short on options at jcp.com. All dressed up, everywhere to go. JCPenney. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It had nothing to lose at this point, and she was running away, so why not be truthful about it? The police reports do state that this note was indeed written in Alyssa's handwriting, but they don't know when it was written. So she could have written it years prior when she got aggravated over something and she was like you know what I'm running away and then she never did so it is possible that Mike Turney either saved it or found it and it just so happened to be at the right time or maybe he even forced her to write it after something happened number three from all interviews and accounts Alyssa had a deep love for her younger sister Sarah and never wanted CPS to separate them, something she had been scared about in the past, which we will get into later. So why would she take such a hard hit at Sarah in the note, saying, Sarah, you really wanted me gone, now you have it. 
Here, I would also like to state that although I grew up as a single child, I have witnessed my cousins, boyfriends, siblings, friends, siblings, etc. say harsh things such as wanting each other to die or go away forever. And to me, these are just things that kids say when they are mad at each other, and I have never taken any of them personally, and I've never seen others take them personally. Now, Alyssa could have been more sensitive to this, but through every video of her and every report, she seems like a really tough girl, and I'm going to go ahead and assume that she got in fights with Sarah on the regular because that's what siblings do. So why would it affect her so much this time, to put it in a note, and run away? Number four, I'm going to jump back to a few things I said like before the note. And just say that what Michael Turney said on 2020 when talking about lunch is pretty creepy. Quote, as long as you're under my roof, you're going to have to do a check-in with daddy because daddy's a nervous wreck if you don't. Unquote. It is shown that Alyssa didn't call him daddy. And so it seems he is only referring to himself as that. I mean, in the note, she says dad. And in some videos, she says dad. Now, she could have called him daddy at other points, but from what I saw, it seems like he's only calling himself that, and that kind of just hits me as, like, creepy and, like, not okay, but I don't know, it could be harmless, too. Also, it seems like he was talking to her in a way one would refer to a toddler about something. So, either he was creepy, or he had no regard for her intelligence or age, because that's not like a sentence you say to a 17 year old. You don't, you don't talk like that. You'd be like, no, you gotta check in with me because you're under my roof and I'll get worried. Like, I don't know. My dad's never talked to me like that, even when I was younger. He doesn't explain things like I have no mind to process them. Number five, after picking up Sarah, he asked her to contact Alyssa right away because she was not answering her phone. One could view this as a father being worried and knowing that his daughter wouldn't answer his calls because she was mad, or one could see this as him starting to establish somewhat of an alibi for his story before anyone even knew Alyssa was gone. If he planned it out like this, then he thought he might be able to get his daughter Sarah to corroborate his story and timeline for that day. Also, I should mention that Sarah didn't even have a cell phone at this time. She used her father's phone to call Alyssa. Why would Mike think that this would work? If she wasn't answering calls from Mike, why would she answer calls from Sarah but from the same phone number? She would just think it's her dad and not answer again. So that seems very odd to me. It kind of seems like he was trying to establish like, yeah, Sarah even tried to call her. She wouldn't answer the phone. Oh my goodness what's going on and I believe um in Sarah's podcast or it was an interview that Sarah said like something along the lines of when they got home she was the first one in Alyssa's room she found the note she found the cell phone and to her like now looking back it kind of seems like it was set up that way like if you have a parent or if you're a parent who is worried that your daughter is missing, wouldn't like you would run straight in there. That's what Sarah said. She's like, I he didn't seem that concerned. 
he let me go in first and like let me find the stuff which seems very convenient for him i'm gonna read a little piece of a blog from the justice for Alyssa website or Alyssa attorney missing i don't remember the thing right now i'm gonna include it in the description i just honestly don't have it up right now i'm going off of my notes um but let me read this for you I didn't know it at the time, but the summer Alyssa was gone broke me. I changed overnight. After spending all of seventh grade telling my friends how lame they were for drinking and smoking pot, for stealing, for sneaking out, they were thrilled that I had finally come around. I was numb and doing things Alyssa had also done made me feel closer to her. I thought somehow she'd know I was cool or know how cool I was now. Maybe we would run into each other at Arrowhead Mall, both stealing makeup and share a laugh, and she wouldn't hate me anymore. I could tell her that I was sorry and that she wasn't bad for what she did, that I would never tell on her again. As I chased both drama to distract me from thinking about Alyssa and anything that would keep me numb, I quickly and aggressively graduated past the normal teenage mischief Alyssa had been involved in. But I was getting a different reaction. Mostly no reaction. My father would pick me up at 7 a.m., watch me stumble to Alyssa's room to sleep for 12 hours, drop me back off at 9 p.m. This repeated all summer, five days a week while my friend's father worked the night shift. The less he cared, the more I told him. But the only thing he ever said was that I was smart and to be careful. Mike Turney has been recorded saying that Alyssa was a difficult child. She was loud, energetic, had ADD, and just overall she was difficult, according to him. I have never really understood his reasonings for saying that she was difficult. Um, He like says things, but he never really says things. He doesn't give an answer as to why he thought she was difficult. Her ADD was diagnosed by a third grade teacher and the principal, apparently, and it is unclear to me if it was ever diagnosed by a doctor. It seems that since Mike Turney knew these people, he got them to say she had ADD. Either way, that doesn't mean she had it, and if she did, she was still able to function normally, just as many other people with ADD do. This seems odd that it would make her difficult. Mike got mad at the school after this so-called diagnosis, and got Alyssa into special education classes because at the time you couldn't just do like different, a few different classes. It was either you were in normal classes or you were in special education classes. Um, So he got her put into special education classes, even though she was doing fine in normal classes, it is reported. This is when she really fought him, just as anyone would if they felt they were doing fine in the normal track. Sarah Turney believes that Mike did this in order to just put Alyssa down. And in the videos and stuff I've seen, it seems like he said a lot of things just to kind of get rid of Alyssa and put her down simultaneously while being completely obsessed with her. Mike Turney talks as if she's a complete idiot. We know that's not true. She did fine in normal classes in school, so she was not an idiot. She also worked a job, and she 
performed as well as anyone else. So, once again, she was not an idiot. He states that she didn't know her ABCs in kindergarten, but first of all, not her fault, and that doesn't really inf- like reflect on her older age intelligence. Um, little story time. When I was younger, maybe like preschool, my grandma, who was a teacher for 30 years and then retired to take care of me, thought that I was going to have a speech impediment my entire life because I didn't say real words yet. So instead of saying like milk, I would say moak, or instead of water, I'd say wawa. And like, I just like, I kind of said the word, but I kind of didn't say the word. And like, she had researched so much before I was born and done like a bunch of things to develop my brain and keep me on the right track. But my speech wasn't keeping up with that. And that really worried her. Um, but now I'm an author and a podcaster Two things that, like, just surround, or are surrounded with words. I feel like I do pretty well on this podcast speaking words, um, besides, like, misreading stuff and just, like, jumbling up a little. Like, I can pronounce words pretty alright. I also think I can write pretty well. Like, I know how to edit, I know grammar, I know all that. And I'm not saying this to reflect badly on my grandma. I love her more than most things in life. And we get along amazingly. I'm even texting her right now as I'm recording this. But, like, she knows I'm intelligent now and was just looking out for me as a young child. But backed off once I started doing well on my own. What I'm saying here is that things change dramatically from kindergarten to high school. And that is not something that should relate to her intelligence in high school. Someone could be behind their entire, like, elementary school career, and then by high school, they're valedictorian. It really doesn't matter. It's just everyone grows at a different rate. Sarah states that Alyssa had a better memory than her, but Alyssa just didn't like school as much as Sarah did, and that's totally okay. I, like, I was in the middle. I kind of enjoyed school, kind of didn't, but I knew people who absolutely hated school, and I knew people who, like, would rather be at school than literally anywhere else in the world. So there's just, everybody's different once again. Mike always brings up that Sarah would help Alyssa with projects, but she says it's because she liked to, and she says Alyssa would help Sarah with craft projects because she had a more creative mind at that time. Um, I think I find this a lot. Those who have more creative minds and who do more, like, artsy things, sometimes, like, on paper, they don't look like the highly intellectual people, but they are. Like, I've talked to some artists who, like, on paper, they can't take tests, they can't do any of that, but they know, like, every philosopher and their art pieces and the history of like everything. I don't know. I'm not explaining it right. But I'm saying that like creative people have a different kind of brain function than those who are like bookworms and facts and all that stuff. It's just very different. And that doesn't mean either one is dumb. So it doesn't mean Alyssa was dumb either. Also, being loud and energetic was just her personality. 
Those things alone do not make her difficult at all. I have had many loud friends, and I know many people much more energetic than I am, but are they difficult? Absolutely not. She was 17, she's supposed to be energetic, and she was confident in herself and had good friends, so she was loud and happy. Who cares? I just, I don't understand how this makes her difficult, and I can't stress that enough. Friends have also said that Alyssa would always be worried about her father going through her things and his strictness on rules. Micah stated that Alyssa had to be watched over because she would put herself in harm's way. It is also stated by friends that harm's way was doing marijuana and staying out late, something that so many high schoolers do and are just fine. Now, I'm not condoning marijuana use if you're underage or if you're somewhere where it's not legal, but um, first let me say, if anyone in my family or anyone's listening to this, I am sorry, but I've smoked marijuana. I did it when I was in high school, and pretty much everyone I knew did it. Um, It's literally like the least bad drug you can do, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinions, and it never caused anything bad in my life. It never put me in harm's way. Um, On the staying out late thing, yeah, I would stay out till like 3 a.m., at like just dumb things I don't even know we would go to like stupid little concerts or six flags we'd be out so late but I never put myself in harm's way those things alone don't mean you're going out to get hurt I think Mike had a very messed up idea of what a high schooler should be and he was kind of implementing that on Alyssa which seems kind of odd to me because he did raise quite a few kids before Alyssa, so it seems he should have known, like, oh yeah, this is just stuff high schoolers get into, it'll pass, all that kind of stuff. He was so controlling that he would go to her work when she had her shifts and sit in the parking lot to make sure she stayed there. He believed that she wasn't always at work when she said she was. He states that he was concerned, not overreacting, don't worry, he wasn't overreacting here, course not. All parents go wash their kids at work, right? That's not creepy at all. If you can't tell, I'm being very sarcastic because that is insanely creepy to me. He was a stalker of his own daughter. Who does that? Anyway, Mike states he felt Alyssa was in immediate danger as soon as she went missing. He said he was the only one who thought this right away, but his actions didn't seem like it. In police reports and other reports from that time, it seemed he thought she was just a kid who ran away and was not concerned about her. Alyssa has stated that since he was law enforcement, or not Alyssa, I'm so sorry, Sarah has stated that like he was in law enforcement for a time, so he knew how to report someone who was missing versus someone who ran away, and he knew how to get a reaction out of the police versus have nothing done. And if he felt she was in immediate danger as soon as she went missing, he should have reported her as missing. He should have done, like, more that he knew would get a reaction from the police. But he chose not to. 
A week after Alyssa, quote, left, Mike Turney claims he got a phone call from her and she was aggravated, but she didn't say much except for a lot of cuss words and to leave her alone. He says the police refused to trace the call and figure out where she called from. Mike Turney says that the Phoenix police were doing absolutely nothing and he kept pushing for help in her case, but they would keep doing nothing. He says he was posting flyers, suing phone companies for records, and all that stuff. He says he was doing whatever he could. Um, 2020 described it as him becoming his own detective. He says he even eventually got the records, and it led to Riverside County, California. But he traveled there and was unable to find any evidence of Alyssa. He was even showing pictures to people, and they just couldn't identify her. Mike sold the family car less than a year after Alyssa went missing. It was also discovered at this time that Mike had two identical trucks. The family ever only saw one, so there could have been evidence in the other one, and no one will know now. So I am going to say something that might be like a little controversial here, but if you have any information on this, then please let me know on Twitter at Great Unsolved. Because really, I'm just searching for an answer here. I don't know the answer, so I'm putting this out there to see if anyone does. So I've always been under the impression that it was unknown if this call really happened, if my attorney ever got that call from Melissa. My stance in this case would make it impossible for her to have called. But how was there a record leading to Riverside County, California from the call then? I never like put these two ideas together and thought about it until now. I don't think Alyssa was alive at this point or in California at this time, but I don't know how to explain the call record. Um, so my question here is, has anyone besides Mike Turney seen this record? Is it real? Did he make it up? Did he hire someone to call him from there to make it believable? I just, I don't know. That kind of shed like a little bit of doubt in my thought process. But I don't put it past Mike Turney that he would hire someone to call him from a payphone to keep this charade going. So in 2006 or 2008, sources I looked at had both listed, so I'm kind of confused. Thomas Heimer confessed to killing Alyssa. In 2003, he was convicted and sentenced to life for the brutal murder of a woman. Because of this, he started to talk to police and the FBI and started confessing. Eventually, he confessed to killing 21 adolescent girls. I don't think most of these have been confirmed, but I'm not sure. You can always Google it yourself. He successfully identified Alyssa from a lineup. He stated that no one would ever find the body or the scene of the crime, which makes conviction very difficult. His overall claim was that they met in Phoenix and went to a hotel. As they were having sex, he strangled her and then put her body in the bathtub, eventually cutting her into six pieces and getting rid of the body. But there were pieces of Thomas's story that just didn't fit. He said that she was a heroin addict, which was never reported beforehand. He stated that she had some odd sexual things, but her boyfriend was consulted and things did not line up. He stated that he had taken her jewelry and given it to ex-girlfriends at the time, but no one can corroborate, corroborate this. 
He failed the polygraph where he confessed to killing Alyssa also. So, yeah, it just, it doesn't, he didn't do it. Basically, police think he saw Alyssa's photograph in the paper before he was ever caught and convicted. And then he just wanted notoriety once he was sentenced to life. After these problems, the police began to find things that made them suspicious of the runaway theory. Alyssa's bank account was untouched. If she was running away seemingly for good, then she probably would have wanted to take all her money, which was about $1,800 at the time. Even in the note, she said she's been saving money, so why didn't she take any of it? Also, none of her belongings were gone. Most runaways take at least a few things, if only just some extra clothes. And I also want to say that I don't know if it was ever confirmed that Mike Turney was missing $300, like it said in the note. The runaway theory was starting to fall apart, and police even began to question if that payphone call ever happened. Friends started to tell police about things that Alyssa said about Mike Turney. They stated she was scared of him, and she described abuse. Her boyfriend at the time said Alyssa told him that Mike was driving one day and drove them out to the middle of nowhere and tried to touch her. A teacher of hers reported hearing of sexual abuse from Alyssa as well. Now, here's the big kicker. So, a member of the family was staying with Mike, Alyssa, and Sarah for a time, and when he got home from work, he went to put in a DVD of Dr. Doolittle. When it popped up, it was not the movie, but a home recording of a girl laid out on the couch in only shorts. Her face was covered by newspaper, and the viewer was fairly certain that this girl was Alyssa. He said you could see the nose and the facial structure and the hair, and he just knew it was Alyssa. There was also another girl in the same position, topless, with newspaper covering her face, that they were pretty certain was Alyssa's friend. There is a phone interview with this family member on the Voices for Justice podcast, episode 4, part 2. So that's going to conclude our first part of the Alyssa Turney case. I've gotten to page 7 in my notes, so... Hopefully we'll get through the rest of my notes on the second part. Um, if not, then we'll do a third part too. But as of right now, this is the first part and I hope you guys learned a lot about Alyssa's case. Go Google the case and there's so many YouTube videos and so many other podcasts on this case. Especially go check out Sarah Turney's podcast, Voices for Justice, because she dives into aspects of the case that a lot of people don't look at. Um, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved, and let me know if you know anything about the record of that phone call from California. Anyways, we will see you back on Tuesday, and have a good weekend. Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. 
The Venture X Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.